0: I'm good on hugs for the rest of my life Mike I've tried explaining to Mike and many others that there really is nothing better than a really good handshake in my opinion it just feels right yeah I was trying and then Derek flanks me from behind and hugs me so so hey I want to share a couple things with you guys real quick a couple of things Uh, if you guys are unaware I'm God is moving okay and and that kind of just becomes a saying, if you will. But I mean, there are things happening in this country that are very powerful. I don't know if you're following along, but um, but with that comes persecution, okay? And there are many times when you're doing the Lord's work, you will be persecuted for it. And I want to show you, I found this, this image here, if you'll put that up for me. Uh, this man is definitely doing the Lord's work, and he's being punished for it criminal caught after cutting off 37 man buns in one day claiming he was doing the Lord's work. He wasn't just claiming it. He was doing the Lord's work, okay? So it's very powerful. Look at that grin. Not the greatest mugshot ever. He's like, I'm being persecuted for Jesus. That's probably what Paul felt like, I'm sure. So obviously I'm joking with that one, but uh, well, I'm sort of joking with that one. So if you guys have ever gone to a a church conference, especially if there's a bunch of worship leaders there, their jeans are too tight. They have v-necks down to their belly button. And man buns are prominent, and none of those are of the Lord. So, anyway, um, but there is something that's really cool going on. If you guys haven't heard of Asbury, you guys heard about that? What's happening? There's also a university over there. I said in Georgia or Kentucky, I forget where it's at. Kentucky? Okay. I knew it was one of those hillbilly places. So. Um, but it's really powerful. There's a college there, and a guy that I know is one of the professors there, uh, Dr. Craig Keener. Um, if you, you probably don't hear me mention him a lot because I would never. In a million years, hand anybody one of his books, because he writes on an intellectual level that no normal human being can understand, except, but you're not normal back there. So, he'd probably be like, okay, does he have any hard stuff? Uh, he's got an incredible two-book tome on miracles and all of that stuff, and it is so academic, it's like, it's painful to read, but it's incredible, the amount of work. But anyway, what happened there is they, they for years, have a Wednesday... Um, I guess convocation, when they get everybody together, just an assembly, all the students, and uh, during that convocation, they decided they were going to just stay after and pray. That was Wednesday. It hasn't stopped since. It's been going 24 hours since, and there are people just coming in. They're just people in. They just get into the presence of the Lord. They fall down crying. They're realizing they need repentance and all of that. This is a university that this is happening. It's got a Wesleyan descent, um, which comes out of a holiness movement, Uh, which is almost unheard of anymore and so it's really powerful seeing what's happened we don't know what's going to take place you know each day this could end tomorrow could be it could have ended by now we don't know Uh, but it's powerful to see what God is doing they actually have a history of this which is fascinating they are uh, uh, I think in the 70s they had one and maybe the 50 the exact same thing happened and it's happened enough that the university which has been around for a very long time has a rule in place for this that uh, if this happens, that the, all the professors and, and uh, people in charge just kind of stand back and don't intervene in any way. It halts classes, I mean, all of that stuff, And uh, unless somebody tries to come in and interfere with it, and then they get involved. And so, we don't know what's going to happen with that, but I would encourage you to keep an eye on it. There is definitely uh, a powerful move of God happening there, so it's, it's very cool to watch. So, it's nice to see some of that in our own country. It's, you know, it just, unfortunately, it's, it's almost unheard of anymore. So with that, now we are going to dive right back in where we left off last week. And the crux of what we've been talking about is the new covenant. One of the biggest problems that we have as, as, I guess I'll call us readers of the Bible, is that we're readers and not studiers because we're not taught how to study. And with that, we don't understand the covenantal system that God has established. Covenants are all around us. You're involved. If you ever bought a house, you entered into a covenant. If you ever got married, you entered into a covenant. That is what it is. You have a covenant relationship with your spouse. And so these covenants matter, and how they're structured matters, and how they're used matters, and the rules within them matter. And in the new covenant, and this is what I said last week, is that essentially you have a bill of rights inside of this covenant. And anything that God had promised inside of this covenant is available for you. And we have to get our minds around that that whatever it is when we enter into this covenant we are now one with God and what comes with that is all of these promises now the problem we have here is that we don't know what those are because we think of you must be saved or you must be born again and we've never really stopped to think about well what are we being saved from and what are we being born again what does that even mean and as we begin to break this down we see John 3 where Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus and he says you must be born again and Nicodemus says Huh? What do you mean? How can a man be born? Can he enter into his mother's womb once again? Obviously the answer is no. No woman would ever sign up for that. Nope. It's like once you're out of the womb, you don't get to go back in. And once you're out of the house, you out. Don't come back. At least that's what my folks told me. My parents told Amy very adamantly that there is a zero return policy. Okay? So he's yours, like it or not. And so... Because we think that, we're like, well, what are we saved from? And born again too, what does that even mean? And when our spirit is reborn, now we have a life again. Eternal life. Now, how does one do that? Is it a bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, repeat after me moment? The answer is, could be. But ultimately, it's a matter of the heart. It's a changing of the heart. Suddenly you recognize yourself as a sinner. Suddenly you realize that I cannot meet the the, the ramifications of God, the glorification of God, and I need an intermediary. And that's what's happening in Asbury right now. So we would be born again. We go from death to life. But we're saved from what? We're not saved to heaven. I hope you understand that. It's really hard. It's like heaven or hell, which one do you choose? Well, ultimately, neither one really comes into play. He's creating a new heaven and a new earth. Ultimately, it's all going to be starting over. So it's not just get to heaven. It's enter into a covenant. And with that covenant comes responsibility. And with that covenant comes capabilities. And with that covenant comes promises that we have to understand. Because wouldn't it be wonderful to know that Whatever God has said, we can do, and we can walk in the fullness thereof. I mean, imagine here. Have you ever, guys, hear like these awards that they, people win and they get a lifetime supply of rice roni or, or whatever? Or they can go into this restaurant. I know, I went really old school. It's a San Francisco treat. I mean, you should love it. But, like, you, you, get a, you hear about like somebody wins a chicken wing contest, they get a lifetime supply of wings or whatever. And they get this card and they walk in, and anytime they show that card, what happens? It's so their right. Do they have to beg? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a card that every time you went to the bank, every time, whether you're depositing, doesn't matter what you're doing, stopping in to say hi, it's cookie day at the bank, you stop by to get a cookie, whatever it is, you had a card that says when you enter into the bank, you get a $100 bill, no matter what, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you guys ever watched Seinfeld, there was an episode where if they didn't greet you with a hello, you got $25, and they built an entire episode around that premise, brilliant beyond their years. I mean, think about that though, what your rights are in this new covenant matter, and your responsibilities in this new covenant matter, and we have turned it into all about us, that we're saved so we can go to heaven and avoid hell, but it is so much deeper than that. That is a byproduct of entering into a covenant relationship with God, and in order to understand that, we have to look at the other covenants, because how God moved there is how God moves here. And so as Jesus comes and inaugurates this covenant, which he did at the moment when he died and was resurrected, it's the inauguration of the covenant. The Jews were not ready for that. They were waiting on Messiah. Messiah was going to show up, and what was he going to do? Take over. Here's David's throne. Messiah sits on it. No more Roman rule. No more worrying about anybody else coming in. (coughs) And so once the kingdom of God was established, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, now you and I enter into this covenant, and it caused a lot of debate. Because they, again, okay, well, these Gentiles, they're coming in, but they've got to be circumcised. They're adding rules. Why are they adding rules? Because they weren't prepared for it. They didn't realize that you could actually be in covenant with God without following the Mosaic Covenant. Because for all of their existence, and their predecessors, and for the majority of Jewish history, that's how you did it. So what do we do with this now? So we have to understand what our rights are. And so when we talk about freedom and we talk about being saved, we have to know from what? Well, we are ultimately saved from death. I'm going to repeat some of this. I'm going to go through some, some uh, scriptures here that we talked about last week. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so we see that death is a byproduct of sin. Sin comes, death enters the world, sickness is slow death. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and whatever those things are, have been destroyed. And we get to walk in a fullness. Do we have to worry about death? Nope. Should we fear death? Nope. Why? Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We are sad when somebody dies, but ultimately they're like, what on earth is y'all's problem? Have you seen this place? I mean, it's pretty fantastic. Everything changes. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages is what you've earned. The gift is what was given to you. You've earned death, but you were given eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? Do we need to fear death? No. Why? Who gave it to us? Now let me think about this for a moment. If we could earn eternal life, could we do something to unearn it? I'm sure that's not like linguistically correct or anything like that. But if we could earn it, and we had a right to it, couldn't we do something to make it go away? But if it was given to us, you can't boast about it. We didn't do anything to get it. So it changes things. So we are free from death. What are we saved from? We're saved from the ultimate wrath of God. There will be a wrath, a judgment. Nobody wants to hear this anymore. There is a judgment of God that is coming. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, what is the wrath coming from? It's going against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So if you have godliness and you have righteousness and you put an un in front of it, it's the opposite. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. So, God's wrath is coming against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And guess what? Outside of that covenant, you can't be godly. You can't be righteous. It's impossible. And chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. And for whatever and whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So, is God's judgment just? Is it Right? Absolutely. So he's getting on those who are hypocritical, like you're getting on somebody about this, but yet you do the same thing. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up For yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. That means we're all in the same boat together. And God's wrath is going to be poured out based upon what? He's going to render to each one according to his deeds. So those are treasuring for themselves up. The wrath of God. You're storing it up. Can it be eliminated? Could it be satisfied? Yep, it's going to be satisfied one of two ways. The way that we hope is Jesus took that wrath upon himself. The way for the majority, unfortunately, is they're going to receive their just due. We don't like that. When you hear somebody say, only God can judge me, unfortunately he's going to. Which is why we're telling them now. It's going to happen. We're saved from wrath. We're saved from death. And with that, we now have access to God. That should excite you more than anything else. Can you imagine? Think about this. Like, we don't wrap our heads around this, but to go to God prior to Jesus, what did you do? You brought your offering, and you handed it over to a priest. And he went to God on your behalf. What working relationship with God did you have? None. And frankly, you probably didn't want it. Because with that came issues. Because nothing they could do could please him. Nothing they could do could wipe away the sins and the requirements and all that. It had to be atoned for. And no matter what they did and what they tried. I mean, walking down the road near a dead person made you unclean. Now i got to go mikvah. Now i got to go sacrifice. Giving birth, i got to make a sacrifice. All of these things. Because nothing could set them apart. But now we have access to God. You're telling me that I can enter into the Holy of Holies where the one guy only got to go? And now I'm there with the presence of God? You're telling me that I have access to God because He dwells in me? Holy smokes. That's incredible. That means where I go, He goes. What I say, He says. We see Jesus say that. I only do what I've seen the Father do. I only say what I've heard Him say. And what we do and what we say are reflective upon God. We should probably get better at it. Before tonight's game, Y'all need to pray a lot. Okay? No excuse. But we have peace with God. What are we trying to do to appease God now? Nothing, because the judgment has been atoned for. The Mosaic Covenant was hinged upon what you had to do. The New Covenant is hinged upon what Jesus did. And if you get nothing else out of this, take that away because they were in a grace first works thing because of their works they received god's grace because of their works they received god's judgment it worked both ways the deeds of the law that they had to do is what brought blessing and it also brought cursing but they signed on for it did god force that covenant upon them nope he laid it out here's what we're going to do guys do you like it sound all right to you they're like yeah sounds pretty sweet sign me up everything was a grace first work and when we get into the new testament when it refers to works, it is referring to the keeping of the mosaic commandments we have to understand that because what we've turned it into is that well you can't be saved by taking communion or being baptized and all of that is true but that the salvation is a byproduct of you being in the new covenant as you guys will see the infilling of the holy spirit is a byproduct of being in the new covenant Walking in the fullness of that covenant is a byproduct of being in that covenant. It's like being born into the right family. Having the right name. If you come from a wealthy family, guess what? By proxy, you get access to some of that. Unless you're a bonehead and they cut you off. And that happens a lot too. See, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what deed of the law could they keep that would make them justified? Nothing. Nothing then how are we justified by what He did? We saw in Acts 15, I'm not going to read it all again, but the, the conversation about what do we do with these Gentiles? They say they've got to be circumcised. Like, and we read that and we're like, oh, you're so dumb. You stupid Pharisees. You guys were always a pain in Jesus' neck. But think about that. What were they doing? They felt like they were doing the Lord's work. They were going around cutting off the man. Took you a second. keep keeping up. I mean, think about that, though. Like, they were sincere. They weren't trying to put something on them just because, in order to enter into the covenant with God under the Mosaic covenant, you first and foremost must be circumcised. This wasn't something arbitrary or just trying to put rules upon them. What Peter and Paul had learned through being in the presence of Jesus and through the ministry that they were doing, it's like, um, he poured out his spirit on them. Just like us. We're going to be saved like they are. Do you guys see how powerful that is? It's because we don't understand these things that we often just glaze through them and we don't read them all. But what do we do now? In Titus chapter 3, verse 1. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lust and pleasure, living malice and envy, <coughs> hateful, and hating one uh, hating one another. You notice how it says, For we ourselves were also once foolish? What does that imply? We're not now. But when the kindness and the love of our God, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. What works? The works of the law. But according to His mercy, He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that washing and renewing are all Jewish terms? But it wasn't a physical washing now. It was through the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So we see here that it was not based off works. They tried, they couldn't keep them, didn't matter, Jesus did. It was through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus that they are now justified in the eyes of God. Is it a grace-first works things today? Sure. You try. There are some that do. But no matter what you do, you'd never be enough. This is why we are now fulfilled in Him. And so because of all of this, we see some of the results of the new covenant. We are redeemed. Anything that Jesus paid for, we have a right to. Any promise that was made is guaranteed. I I, I started holding a position many, many years ago, and it's simply like this. If you don't know, and maybe you do, if you've ever been in some of the church uh, government, if you will, and the structure, is people will complain about anything and everything. And churches split over the stupidest of things. And seldom is it a doctrinal difference. Often, it's what color the carpet is. How big the children's wing is. The church that I came from, they did a, they had to do a build out because they had just grown exponentially and had a huge auditorium. And when they did it, they went from having one screen to three screens. Primarily because of the size of the room. And people were mad. And this is what they said. If they put three screens in, That's stupid. What if they put four? Would that be okay then? I mean, it's so dumb. We had another one, uh, the same thing, had one time where uh, because this church happened to be in a mall, okay, we set up a a child check-in system because anybody could come in and out. We had people around, but you don't know everybody. I mean, it was a a pretty good-sized church, and uh, we set this child system in to protect the kids. That way, you know, somebody just walk in like, oh, I'm here to pick up little Susie there. And we're like, okay, here you go. So we had this whole system. We just got established. Took a lot of money, took a lot of time, but it was all for protecting these kids so we didn't have any issue. Week one, lady signing up her kids. She's like, I left my last church because of this. Really? So here's my, my belief system. You ready? This is very complex, very well thought out. If Jesus didn't die for it, paint it, carpet it, put wood floors down, put a check in, I don't care. If Jesus didn't die for it, we're not going to argue about it. We're going to be adults. You know how well that went over? Not well. Because the people that wanted to argue about it, they didn't like that. But it's the truth. So as we begin to look at this, what did Jesus die for? What did he pay for? If he paid for it, For you doesn't that mean you should have a right to it? in Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 it says who can say I have made my heart clean I am pure from my sin we can say the latter half of that but we didn't make our hearts clean we are pure from our sin we are born again in this covenant one more Romans chapter 6 verse 15 says what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace certainly not do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one, slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of a lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of unrighteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, You were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages is what you earn, gifts are what you're given. You see, in the old covenant, as I said last week, murder and adultery were wrong. And in the new covenant, they're wrong. And even more so on how we get there. Because it had less to do with the physical act and more to do with the heart of the individual. And so as we go through this, and as we get into this stuff, we've got to begin to understand something. We're in a covenant relationship with God. To truly understand that, we have to understand the other covenant relationships with God. the God uh, uh, that set these things up and what he meant by them and understand them. And so when we hear salvation, because we have watered it down that it's almost unrecognizable, we don't even know what we're saved from because we really don't feel like we're that bad a person. Like Adolf Hitler, pretty bad dude. All these guys. The, the, what's the, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Pretty bad dude. I didn't do any of that. I must be okay. See, we don't really feel like we're bad. But the problem is is that what we are bad at is meeting the standard. The law would enable you to fulfill the righteous requirement if you had the ability to keep the law. But because our flesh is weak and has its own desires, it goes after the things of the flesh, the things of this world. We can never do it. And so now, because Jesus has done it, what are we free from? We're free from sin. See, we're not bound by it anymore. We don't have to do it. We can choose to do it. But we don't have to do it. We have been set free. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he became sin. We did not. We are now righteous because he became sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin." And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you, being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which are contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 for as many of you are as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it is written is everyone who is not continuing all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So what did we figure out? we figured out here is that no matter what we did, what we can do, we can never meet the righteous requirement, but Jesus did on our behalf. And whatever Jesus paid for, we are set free from. We are no longer slaves of sin, we are slaves of God. We hear that term, we put a negative connotation on it. What does that mean? What He says, we do. That's simply what it means. There's an ownership aspect there. You were purchased with a price. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All of these things imply an ownership aspect. There, We are set free by God. Jump ahead a little bit to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'm moving ahead just a little bit. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do that it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condensed, him in the, condensed uh, sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can do nothing. But what happens when God puts in our lives this new covenant? We see... In John chapter 20, what does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. You see, one of the byproducts of this is the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus promised. He said, this is the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. I'm giving this to you. Why does he give that to us? Why do you think? He gives it to us because without it, we can do absolutely nothing. You see, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that sets us free. It gives us the ability to walk in the fullness of what God has promised. It gives us, and we tend to take this for granted, it gives us the ability to walk a sin-free life. Now, there's a difference between the indwelling and the infilling and the outflow of the Spirit, or the pouring out of the Spirit. But see, we have to understand something. We have to understand that the reaction, or the reason for God does this, is He sets us free. I want you to look at John chapter 8 real quick. John chapter 8, verse 28. I think we've got that up here. John chapter 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. As He spoke these words, many believed in Him. Now, who is He talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. This is who He's talking to. You look at the context, He's dealing with the Pharisees. John chapter 7 through John chapter 10, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. And He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. That means right now they don't know. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. He goes on to say, Oh, and as a result of that, as he spoke his words, many believed him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So they believed in him means that now they are like, this is the Messiah. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. You should know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Free from what? That's the thing. We make that statement, but what are we free from? Well, let's go on. They answered him. We are Abraham's descendants, and I've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be be free indeed. What are you free from? Free from sin. Do you realize how powerful that is? See, we still justify our sin, but we are free from it. We may choose to do it. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Verse 1, it says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we uh, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So, what's he referring to? When you were children, not referring to age, we were in bondage to the elements of the world. In other words, the power of the world, which comes is run by who? Satan himself. Okay, let's go on. But when the fullness of God had come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of son. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Crying out, Abba Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, what did he send forth? He sent forth his spirit. What are you free from? You're free from sin. You are an heir of God, which means you have what? Peace. You have access to him. The Holy Spirit is part of that. Now look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So then when we walk in fear of anything, where did that spirit come from? It comes from the enemy. We have a spirit of power. We have a spirit of love. We have a sound mind. Where did those come from? God. Why do we walk in fear? Why do we fear death? Why do we fear this world? Why do we fear condemnation? Because we're walking in the fullness of the flesh. We don't have our eyes set on the things above. We have our eyes set on the things right here, right now. But the spirit that God gave us is power, is love, and a sound mind. What more do you need? Go to Romans chapter 8 verse 12. It says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or as many as are led of the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Now, what spirit He did not give us the spirit of bondage, the spirit of fear. Does the church today walk in fear? Does the church today walk in bondage? Absolutely. Should it? No. He gave us the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. The Holy Spirit has set us free. We are adopted. We are joint heirs. We have a right to what? Whatever was promised when we entered into that covenant. Whatever was promised. If He promised it, it's your right And it's hard to know what you're entitled to if you don't understand what the covenant is and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will walk like a rudderless ship, aimless, floating around, going through life. And many do, and many will continue. We are discussing this this morning. There are people who will spend their entire life in church, but will never be directed by God, will never be led by God, they will just kind of exist. They want God part of their life. They don't want Him to run their lives. They want Him as their Savior. They don't want Him as their Lord. They would much rather go after the things that they want. And they will imply that that's what God wants. Than seeking first the kingdom. I was discussing with somebody this week. You know it always cracks me up. Because we always assume promotion is from the Lord. Not every opportunity is from God. And not every door that closes is God closing it for you. And it's the same here as, as, as in, in ministry where a pastor is always seems to be promoted to a bigger church and a higher salary. Never, almost never, do you see them take a lesser salary with a smaller church. I'm sorry. Can't God lead you to that? And He does. Don't misunderstand me. That's not all encompassing. But we have turned that into the same structure that the world uses. I've got to get promoted. I've got to get on TV. I've got to have this big ministry and all of that. Those are carnal expectations. We take jobs based off salary, never asking, all right, Lord, can I serve you better here? Is this an opportunity from you? As long as the salary is higher, we're in. So I want to show you something in Acts chapter 6. This is a story about Stephen. Some of you guys are familiar with this. And Stephen was a mighty man, he's going to be ultimately martyred, he's going to be killed, but I want you to show, to show you what he does. He's going to get brought before the Sanhedrin, okay? We're going to start in Acts chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 8, we're going to work our way through chapter 7, okay, verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now stop, what was special about Stephen? Nothing. Nothing. Wouldn't you love it if somebody could write and Stephen, full of faith and power and Yoli, full of faith and power did great signs and wonders. and Paul, full of faith and power and Jim, full of faith and power and Brett, full of faith and power did great signs and wonders among the people so much so that it got you to Wouldn't that be wonderful if somebody could write that about us? What made him special? Nothing. Let's go on. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now stop. You know what he said? They were not able to resist what he was saying. Why? He's full of faith and power. I guarantee you, the words coming out of his mouth were spirit-led words. Those words are hard to ignore so they can't deny what he's saying that didn't change their mind verse 11 then they secretly induced men to say we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God now this is a problem why is this a problem they're living on the Mosaic Covenant you know what you don't do speak blasphemy against Moses because if you do it's speaking blasphemy about God if you're in North Korea you know what you don't do make a fat joke about Kim Jong Un Go to verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. And they came upon him, they seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses, who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face, as the face of an angel. Now, did he say any of those things? No, at least we don't have a record of it. But they are setting up false witnesses, and when the people sitting there are listening to the testimony against him, what do they see him as? The face of an angel. Just like your mama would. Can't possibly have said that. Go to chapter seven, verse one. It says then the high priest said, "Are these things so?" Fair question is what they say true. He has a legal right here, and he knows his legal right. He gets an opportunity to defend himself. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave them no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Now, stop for a moment. I want you to picture this thing. Like, this isn't a court of law like you and I would be accustomed to. But there would be likely 12 men sitting up there listening to this arbitration go on. And they brought the accusers against him. They're telling him all the things. And there would have been a great crowd. And it would have been more than one person saying it. No, but they had to have at least two or three witnesses and they couldn't bring the accusation. That's why they stirred up the people. And Stephen is sitting there with the face of an angel. Is he moved? Is he worried? Now I want you to watch as we go through this. The first thing he begins to do is he begins to give a history lesson. Is there anything that he said that those people in charge would not have agreed with? No. No. You also notice here that he's not begging for his life. Okay? Let's go on. Verse 6. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them in in bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And so far, these guys be like, yeah, yeah, Stephen, that's right. That's good. That's good, Stephen. You know your stuff. That's great. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, and God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt, and Canaan and our fathers found uh, no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent, over our, uh, sent out our father first, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Okay? So far, so good. Where are you going with this, Stephen? This is this is good. We get it. We know. Verse 14. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money for the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. And he made a point earlier. He's like, God never gave this land at that time to him, but Abraham did buy a piece of it in order to bury it. But so far, so good. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God has sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Till another king arose, who did not know Joseph, this man dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up with her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptian. It was mighty in word and in deeds. And so still, so far, so good. Everything sounds good, Stephen. Where are you going with this? Now, when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him, who was oppressed and struck down by the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you do wrong, or why do you wrong one another? And he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then the same uh, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Now, look what he said here. He killed the man being oppressed, or the oppressor of the man, thinking his brothers would understand. And one neighbor is wronging another neighbor. And as soon as Moses intervenes, what does he say? Who are you to judge me? You are going to kill me like them? This sounds familiar. But so far, everything is right on par. There's nothing that they're hearing that would make them cause for concern. What is he doing? Remember, what was the accusation? He spoke against Moses. What is he setting up? This is what Moses did. This is what my position is. Verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended, oh, let me jump ahead, I I read that already, let's go to verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and Moses trembled, dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Okay? Verse 35. Moses, whom they rejected, saying, uh, who made you ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to a ruler and delivered by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for years. Now, again, they're listening to this like, okay, I don't like the part where you said they rejected Moses. But yeah, Moses did come in and he did lead the people out. Everything so far, so good. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said that the children of Israel, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him shall you hear. This is he who who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the angel who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for, the, uh, for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and rejoiced the works, uh, in the works of their own hands. So he's, again—he's setting all of this up, and they're probably sitting there thinking, like, "Okay, you, now you're kind of turning all the bad stuff that we did. Where are you? Where are you going with this?" Verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and, and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took to the, up to the tabernacle of Moloch. And the star of your God, remphan uh, Images you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it in according to the pattern that he has seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the, uh, the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house and so here again we're seeing this thing with Moses they reject him he said that there was one that was going to rise up that's fine where are you going with this now watch this in verse 48 however the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands now this is a problem because where did the most high dwell in their minds in the temple now he wasn't there but they believed it as the prophet says now he's going to prove it heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So far, the most blasphemous statement he has made is that he is not in the temple made with hands. And now he's about to turn the corner. Now you're going to watch, he gave them a history lesson. But now he's going to prophesy to them. Look what he says, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, in whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. These are the guys looking to put him to death. What is he not doing? Begging for his life. Why? No fear. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What was he full of? the Holy Spirit how can you stand fearless in front of your persecutors who have your life in their hands and give a message like that you call them stiff necked and uncircumcised we don't really think that that's a big deal that's a big deal when it talks about them gnashing their teeth at them that's the grinding of the teeth they want to kill them right now look how bold he is What does he have to fear? Nothing. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. And what was he calling on God? Jesus, save me! Jesus, strike them! Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is so powerful. What changed for him? It's the Holy Spirit. He was a man full of faith and full of power. You see, the byproduct of being in this new covenant is that we are full of the Holy Spirit. There's two aspects of that that we're going to begin to to get into, but... Full of the Holy Spirit. What was special about Stephen? Answer is nothing. What fear did he have? The answer was none. He stood on truth. Why did he stand for that? Because he knew what was going to happen. He didn't beg God. He didn't cry out. He didn't fall on his knees and ask for forgiveness or any of this other stuff to these guys. You stiff neck and uncircumcised people. And then he looked in heaven, and what did he see? Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He knew it was coming. And his last words, don't hold this charge against them. See, that's powerful. You see, what comes with this new covenant is the ability to not fear death, to not fear anything, because we are full of the Holy Spirit. We have to begin to understand what that means. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that every aspect of it is something that we can live our lives by. And Father, that you have set us free from sin. Set us free from the law. You set us free from all the bondage of this world. And that we can walk in the fullness thereof. And Lord, I thank you that your promises are yes and amen to him who believe. And I thank you, Lord, that we are a church, a people, a body that will walk in the fullness. That we will not simply make you a part of our life and mix you in here and there but that you will become the fullness of our life, that every thought and every word and every desire is yours. And so, Father, we just pray that you be glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. And we do have foundations right after.